On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Brandon Warmke about moral grandstanding. We cover topics like, how is this related to virtue signaling? Is it different? Is it the same thing? What are the costs of moral grandstanding? What makes it so tempting and has social media made it worse? How can we stop doing it and how can we help our friends and family members stop doing it. We talk about this and more uh, on this episode. And as always, if you have thoughts about the episode in general or ideas or requests for the show, you can always hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can email us at contact at the London Now for the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. We think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. A place for friendly discussion and debate that is designed to generate deep and clear thinking. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today we have the distinct pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Brandon Warmke to talk about uh, his new book, Moral Grandstanding. Uh, it's, I think, probably the most relevant topic we've ever had on the podcast, considering how widespread this issue is and how much it is part of the culture of social media and news and everything that goes along with it. So I'm really looking forward to learning from him on this topic. Uh, Brandon, why why don't you uh, give us just a little bit about yourself and introduction? So I imagine probably half our listeners have no idea who you are or or what your book is about. Um, So maybe just give us a little bit of background, just who you are and why you got interested in the topic. Sure. Well, thanks for having me, uh, Jordan and Brandon. It's nice to be with you. I, most of your listeners probably have no idea who I am. <laughs> I'd be surprised if any of them do. Um, no, it's uh, thanks. Thanks for having me, and that's very kind to say about the book. Um, so, I uh, I'm a philosopher. I I, I teach uh, I teach philosophy at Bowling Green State University, which is in Northwest Ohio, just south of Toledo, uh, about an hour and a half south of Detroit. And I've been here about four years. Uh, I did my PhD at the University of Arizona in philosophy. I did that in 2014. I did a couple postdocs after that. Um, one at Wake Forest, just down the road from you guys. And then uh, I, I spent a year at the Center for Philosophy of Religion at the University of Notre Dame. Awesome. Um, before my PhD, I did a master's um, in philosophy at Northern Illinois University. Uh, my brother is actually a, a philosopher as well. He he's, uh, teaches there at... Um, at Northern Illinois. And before NIU, I did my undergrad at a little place in Chicago called uh, Moody Bible Institute. So I had a bit of a circuitous route to philosophy. As you might imagine, going to Moody is not the most <laughs> um, efficient way of uh, getting a PhD <laughs> in philosophy and becoming a, a professional philosopher. But as, as it turns out, actually, there's several, several f- philosophers of um uh, significant reputation who have come through Moody in the past uh, 10 or 15 years or so, um, excluding myself. <laughs> uh, so, um, so I mostly work on uh, issues related to moral and political philosophy. Um, my dissertation was on forgiveness. Um, I, I've written about a dozen or so papers on the topic of forgiveness, including divine forgiveness, what it would mean for God to forgive us. Um, and that was my major area of research until about 2014 or 15 or so. I, when I was finishing up my PhD, uh, a friend of mine, Justin Tosi, who I went to grad school with, who now teaches at Texas Tech University, uh, we started looking around public discourse. So this is around 2014. Yeah. And uh, things seem to us to be getting uh, pretty toxic, toxic in a way that I think um, felt new at the time. And it struck Justin and I that a lot of people were using public discourse as a vanity project. They were talking about morality and politics, not so much to, um, you know, have a debate or to provide evidence or to share people's uh, perspectives on things or even to solve a problem seemed to us that a lot of people were engaging in moral and political discourse to impress other people with their moral values. And so we wrote this paper uh, called Moral Grandstanding that came out in 2016. I got a fair bit of attention at the time. And then um, we started partnering with a psychologist, Josh Grubbs, um, who's a colleague of mine here at Bowling Green. 
And to date, we've run about seven studies with 6,000 participants trying to do some empirical work on public discourse and how people uh, grandstand in public discourse. And then uh, we just um, published a book, Justin and I did, with Oxford University Press, came out uh well it was a <laughs> there was a covid related delay they the books were printed but couldn't couldn't escape the warehouse for a few months so <laughs> the book came out in july and um it's it's uh it's a shorter book it's uh written for uh um non academic audience i mean i think there's some serious philosophy in there but it's largely written for non-academic. My mom read it. Uh, my mom's not an academic. Uh, <laughs> and we, in the book, basically what we do is um, drawing resources from uh, empirical psychology, political science, economics, uh, sociology, and philosophy. We, we give an account of what moral grandstanding is. Um, we show what it looks like in public discourse. We give several moral arguments, depending on whatever your moral theory is. We give several arguments for why it's bad and should be avoided. We explain what it looks like in politics and how it affects politics in a democracy. And then in a concluding chapter, we try our best to give some advice about what to do about grandstanding and how to create a public square worth participating in. Um, so if you don't mind, why don't we just start with a basic definition? I think most people probably have a decent idea just from hearing the phrase moral grandstanding about, you know, what you're getting at, but, um, how do you define that in the book? Good. Yeah. And, and maybe mention comment, I guess, how it relates to virtue signaling. Cause mm-hmm. I do think, uh, at least in the circles I run in, people use that term more frequently than they do yeah. moral grandstanding. Yeah. Good. Uh, Justin and I just published something on psychology today, just a couple days ago, on virtue signaling and grandstanding. So uh, if, <laughs> if your intrepid listeners want to go read something we wrote about the differences. So this is an interesting – so I, I'm going to address the virtue signaling thing first, uh, Brandon, and then uh, I'll, I'll come back to your question. Um, sure. Yeah. But first, I, I'm gonna, I do want to – Jordan's question here, I think is, is a – for a good one to get out of the way. So when we started writing about grandstanding in 2014, that was the term, you know, that, like that was, you know, so it dates back to a book in the 1800s on baseball and it refers mm. to baseball players. They'd mm. make these catches in the outfield and they'd sort of like roll around and tumble and show off. And they were called the grandstand players. They were sort of putting on a show and uh, throughout the 20th century and especially the beginning of the 21st century, this term um, became fairly ubiquitous in public discourse. So if you look back, like Obama used to call Republicans grandstanders. Uh, um, people have been calling each other grandstanders for, you know, past few decades in politics. And then, so we wrote this paper and then around 2015, and it, it's, it's weird because it feels like the term has been around longer than just five years. But but as far as, I, as, far as we can tell, the term sort of made its way into the internet in around 2015, this term virtue signaling. And um, Jordan's right that I think a lot of people use this term now uh, to refer to uh, egoistic, showy, moral talk. And I, I, I have a theory about why I think they think it sounds cool. I think they think it sounds more scientific or something. <laughs> um, so let me just say a few things about what grandstanding is, and then I'll talk about, and then I'll return to the virtue signaling thing. And I'll, and I'll say a little, little bit about why I think uh, the term is fine as so far as it goes, but it's actually quite misleading in several ways. So here's the basic account of grandstanding. Um, if you, like the simplest bumper sticker description of grandstanding is grandstanding is the use of public discourse for self-promotion. So people using discussion of morality and politics as a vanity project, trying to impress other people, Um, using discussions of immigration or Black Lives Matter or traditional family values or discussions of the troops, whatever it is, trying to get people to think that they're morally impressive. That's like the the simplest way of thinking about it. Um, In the book, we give a little more detailed account. We call this the basic account. It's just got two parts. So grandstanding, you can think of it in terms of a formula. So grandstanding equals, and there's two parts. There's what we call the grandstanding um, expression. And this is what you actually say. It's what you put on Twitter, what you write on Facebook. It's the sentence or paragraph, whatever it is that you put out there, whether it's in a stump speech or on cable news, whatever 
whatever the grandstander is doing, it's what he or she is actually saying. Now, as it turns out, as we'll see in a moment, it's very difficult to know whether someone's grandstanding just by looking at what they say. Um, in this respect, grandstanding is like lying. Uh, you can't know whether someone's lying just by looking at a sentence. Um, what do you have to know? Well, one of the things you have to know is what's in their head, right? So the other part of grandstanding is what we call the recognition desire. And the recognition desire is roughly um, a desire to be seen by others as um, morally impressive or morally good. And it could be a very general desire. Maybe you just want people to think of you as a really morally uh, superior specimen. Um, sometimes you just want to be seen as one of the gang, you know, where everyone else is really a reprobate. You, you know, hey, I'm just doing my bit. You know, I'm just morally decent. The rest of you... Um, <laughs> Uh, backwards folks, you benighted people, you can't even get your act together. Um, sometimes it's a very specific desire. You know, I might desire that other people think I care deeply about the poor. You might, you might want others to think that you have some really uh, enlightened um, insight into how to solve the housing crisis or whatever it is. So the desire could be very general, could be very specific, but the idea is that you have this desire and it's quite strong and it's motivating you to say what you say. It's motivating the grandstanding expression. So the basic account is just that you have the strong desire to impress other people. It may not be the only desire, but it's really strong. And it's motivating you to say this thing in public discourse, such that if you were to find out <laughs> that no one was impressed by what you said, you'd be disappointed. Okay, so that's the that's like the mid-range uh, uh, level of description. In the book, we actually give a little we go, go a little deeper into psychology. We could talk about that if you want. We talk about status seeking and how that works. Um, but I'll, but I'll pause there. Okay. So, so grandstanding is wanting others to think of you as morally impressive because of what you say when you discuss morality and politics. So now virtue signaling, what most people mean, I think when they accuse someone of virtue signaling, they mean what we mean basically by grandstanding. They're thinking that this person is just saying this in order to impress other people. Um, the problem is that um, the term is both ambiguous and misleading. So here's why it's ambiguous. So as, as the term signaling is used in um, economics, biology, psychology, signal can refer to two different things. Sometimes signaling refers to this intentional trying to impress other people. So you might signal your wealth by buying a fiberglass speedboat <laughs> or <laughs> buying a Camaro, right? And and that could be a, a, a honest signal if you actually are wealthy, or it could be a dishonest signal if you're not wealthy, okay? So signals can be honest or dishonest. And Sometimes we use the term signal to mean like we're trying to send a message. Um, but the term signal doesn't always mean that. In fact, if you look at the sciences, for example, a lot of signaling is unintentional and we're not aware of it. So like chimpanzees, the, <laughs> it's maybe a little risque for your audience, guys, but the, uh, <laughs> the rear ends of female chimpanzees turn red. Um, um, when they're especially fertile and uh, the male chimpanzees recognize this signal, but no one, no one's thinking like, Oh, the female chimpanzee is like intentionally turning her derriere red, right? That's not what's happening, but it's still a signal and it's an honest signal. And, and so signaling can mean what you're trying to do, or it could just mean something that actually sends information about you. So for example, if I draw, if I drive a, a Volvo and, and pull up into Whole Foods and listen into NPR. That sends, <laughs> that sends a signal about me, even if I'm not aware of it and trying to send it. Okay, so why do I point all that out? Well, some people defend virtue signaling by saying something like this. They say, what could be wrong with being seen doing something virtuous? Yeah. And Justin and I have no problem with being seen doing something virtuous. That isn't what we're about. What we're interested in is engaging in this very specific context, public discourse, in order to be seen as a good person, in order to be to be um, seeking status and trying to impress other people. So virtue signaling, it's the term signaling is just inherently ambiguous. Okay. Yeah. Let me just say a few other things and then I'll, I'll shut up here. So the um, 
Virtual signaling is also mis it's also misleading for a couple of reasons. One is, as we point out in the book, in order to grandstand, you don't have to try to get people to think that you're virtuous. Virtue is an excellence of character. And um, some grandstanding, as I pointed out earlier, is just trying to show that you're morally decent, where other people fall below that threshold. So you might say, I can't believe Jordan, Brandon, I am disgusted that you both still eat meat. That is that is genocidal. Any morally decent person can can realize that we shouldn't be eating animals do better. Okay. Now, when I say that, I'm not, I'm not claiming I have any excellence of character. All I'm saying, if we take it at face value, is that I'm minimally morally decent where you guys are just reprobates. Okay. So virtue signaling is misleading in that it, it requires this sort of what you're trying to get people to think is that you're virtuous. Okay. Yeah. Finally, um, Virtue signaling invites discussion of vice signaling. So maybe you've seen people use this term vice signaling, and it's unclear what this refers to. So does vice signaling mean like I'm trying to get people to think badly of me? Or is it that I'm trying to signal virtue, but what I'm actually revealing is my vice? Or is it that I think that I'm trying to signal virtue, but people in my out group Hmm. interpret my values as vicious? So it's just unclear what these what these terms mean. And then we're going to get in these pointless discussions about whether I'm signaling virtue or vice. So that's a long uh, spiel just to say that Justin and I think that grandstanding is just a better term. It it was the original term. And we think it, it, because it's in a way a term of art, we can just use it to capture what we have in mind instead of getting into all these, um, in a way, um, distracting conversations about virtue signaling and what it means and so on. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So as you've talked about this somewhat, and, you know, even in in the beginning of your book, you talk about how many of us feel uneasy about the way people talk in public about morality and politics and, and the way, and I guess this example of back in the 1800s where this grandstanding is coming from, it seems like moral grandstanding has been something that's probably been around forever but at the same time, I definitely get the sense that social media and, and news have accelerated this recently. And so maybe I, I want to know, has it really accelerated or are we, or are we just blind to it? And now suddenly everybody sees it as toxic, toxic and is complaining about it? Or did it actually accelerate? And, and why did that happen? What's making it so bad? This is the million dollar question, Jordan. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe ten million dollars. You might get lucky here. Um, this is a difficult question. So, uh, um, in a way, I think I agree with the premise of your question, which is that grandstanding has always been with us, but there is something unique about the moment. So let me let me say why I think both those things are true. So, um, grandstanding, um, it's the reason we do it is because of some pretty fundamental basic features of human psychology. And I'll briefly list them. One of them is that what psychologists call moral self-enhancement. A lot of us think that we're morally better than we are. And a lot of us think that we're morally better than the average person. This is true for even violent criminals in, uh, in prison. They, most human beings think they're morally better than average. We also care deeply about what other people think of us. And so uh, studies show that our moral ident- identities are very important to us. And and for good reason, it's important to other people think that we're moral too, right? So that they trust us, so they'll work with us, so they'll date us or marry us, right? Trust us with their kids, Sunday school, right? So it's important that other people think well of us. And so we engage what psychologists call impression management, right? We do things that invite other people to think certain things of us. Yeah. Um, and also, finally, we engage in what uh, psychologists call social comparison. So part of our identities is determined by how we think we measure up to others. And uh, this is true. Uh, the, the example I often give of this is like how funny you think you are. Like depending on some context, you might think, man, I'm the funniest guy here, right? Like maybe with your family, you're like the funniest guy in the family. And then like you hang out with your friends and like, man, I'm like the fourth funniest person here. <laughs> so so we often think of ourselves in relation to others. And, and if you think of yourself as really morally enlightened, as caring th- deeply for the poor, if someone says something in public discourse that makes others believe or induces others to believe 
if they're really morally impressive, we have an incentive to sort of step in and either match them or outdo them. This is why often public discourse turns into a moral arms race where we're turning this into a competition. So anyway, these are also status seeking. I mean, uh, status seeking is a very basic human um, uh, desire, probably up there with food and sex and community. Um, it's status seeking is just a very, a very base human, uh, base and basic, uh, human desire. So all that to say, these are very basic human motivations. In fact, someone just sent me recently a passage from, uh, David Bentley Hart's translation of the new Testament. I don't know if you guys have this. I'm showing this on video, like your listeners can see, but you know, I don't have it, but I'm aware of it. <laughs> I recommend it. It's a wild translation. It's, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but he basically, it's the most wooden translation that's, I think, probably ever been made in English. I mean, he literally went word for word and like, it's, a, it's like wooden, it's more wooden than the NASB. Is that what the most yeah. wooden translation is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. the if you thought the NASB was wooden, like you haven't, you haven't read. <laughs> so anyway, there's a footnote where um, he gives an explanation for what, how he translates um, hypocrite. Uh the Greek word is something like hypocrite. So, yeah. uh, but he has a footnote where he where he doesn't use the word grandstander, but it's basically a grandstander. So, Jesus is calling out these you know these Pharisaic these Pharisaical uh, grandstanders. So, it's been with us for a long time. Um, so, there's nothing new about the psychological ingredients. Here's what I do think is new. A um, hundred years ago, if you wanted an audience of fifty people, you had to be uh, well, he had to be a minister or a politician or, uh, I don't know, <laughs> that's about it, or stand on the street corner. Um, those are the options. If you want, if you, you know, very few people could get a huge audience, maybe journalists. Now, you know, literally anyone can fire up their phone or their computer and talk to hundreds, thousands, millions of people. And for a lot of people, that the temptation that can come with having an audience. I mean, look, we all know the things that we could say to get like 10 retweets, 100 likes, yeah. right? We yeah. all know we all know the things that we could say. Um, and some of us do it and some of us don't. <laughs> but the, the temptation is there. And so I do think that what modern technology has done is that it's given everyone, and this is sort of trite, I think, but it's given everyone a soapbox. It's given everyone a platform to satisfy these desires that we might all otherwise like to satisfy. We might all like to have other people think well of us and think we're morally enlightened and, and we really care deeply about this cause or that. But you know, it's like, well, I got to go take care of my kids or mow the lawn. But when you can get on your phone and broadcast these things and feel the instant psychological affirmation, the dopamine rush of that retweet for a lot of people, that's just a very hard temptation to resist. And so that's my sort of very simplistic explanation for why I think um, things f- both seem timeless, but also um, for some reason different now. I mean, if you think back to like my, I mean, you guys are maybe old enough for MySpace. Um, yeah. yeah. And even like early Facebook, I don't remember anyone talking about politics. No, it's the same thing. I was thinking, I was like, I posted on Facebook, like, I am taking a nap. Yeah. Or, you know, like, just <laughs> yeah. unbelievably dumb things yeah. like Brandon that. Brandon Warnke is about to go to the gym. Brandon Warnke <laughs> is cooking macaroni. Like, that was, I just don't remember a lot of political discussion. Um, so, it's an interesting question why, even given, I, I think it's one of those things that people figured out. Yeah. It's one of these technologies that people figured out how to use. And you might think, well, why didn't we figure it out sooner? And sometimes humans are just stupid. Like <laughs> it took us 50 years to put wheels in the bottom of suitcases. So I don't, <laughs> maybe, maybe it just took a while to figure out that Facebook could be used for this um, as a, as a technology. Uh, that's fair. Did, when you were doing your research, did, did you come across any information that made you believe that, that this grandstanding behavior is more prevalent uh, in some cultural groups versus others? Yeah, that's a really nice question. Um, so the way we measure grandstanding, we actually um, use some research in psychology to, to measure grandstanding. Psychologists say there's two ways to gain social status. One is by prestige and one is by dominance. So prestige seeking is you want people to think well of you. You want people to think that you're great. Dominance is like, you know, shaming someone, 
um, tearing someone down. So you can think of status seeking as pulling yourself up and dominance striving is pushing other people down. So what we thought was we could measure grandstanding in these two ways. So some people grandstand for prestige, some people grandstand for dominance. So some of the darker behavior you see online, the really nasty stuff, it's, it's more dominance. The more maybe maybe um, high-minded, moralizing is maybe more prestige seeking. So here's what we found when we, when we measured um, thousands of people's responses to our um, to our uh, I, our, our survey items. Um, it turns out that um, college students do a little more grandstanding than the rest of us. Um, that seems to be true, but you don't find um, any ideological or partisan differences in grandstanding. And in a way, we were glad <laughs> that this was the case. Um, but so, if you look at the right and the left, either conservatives, um, liberals, Republicans, Democrats. What we measured is motivation to grandstand, and we and there's virtually no difference. Hmm. So people on the right and the left are just as equally motivated to grandstand. What we did find, or for prestige, I should say that. Um, what we did find is that the more extreme your views are, so the more to the right you are, the more to the left you are, the more likely you are to grandstand. Hmm. And we have some theories. Uh, we have a paper coming out actually on polarization and grandstanding about why this is the case. But if you think of it as like a, a U curve, people in the political center grandstand less than people at the um, outskirts of the political divide. That's for prestige. So it's a normal distribution. Dominance, it, it's a flat line. So basically, no matter who you are, no matter where you fall across the political spectrum, um, you're just as likely to grandstand. Mm -hmm. So in other words, um, and we think, turns out that if you're, uh, if you do a lot of dominance grandstanding, you're probably a narcissistic antagonist. Uh, <laughs> it's a pretty, pretty dark uh, uh, suite of psychological traits. You're a narcissistic antagonist. Um, whereas the people who grandstand for prestige, they tend to be narcissistic, nar narcissistic extroverts. Um, look at me, look how great I am, that sort of thing. Um, off the top of my head, I don't remember any other, any other demographic differences uh, with respect to things like race, race or ethnicity, religion, or gender. I don't quote me on this, but I do believe we found some evidence that men are slightly more inclined to grandstand than women. That's not surprising given the men tend to have a little score a little higher in entitlement and, and status seeking. And so it wouldn't be it wouldn't be that surprising. Yeah, I think the I think the college student thing is pretty funny because it's it's always been that way. Right. You know, you you get to your like your second year of college and you feel super enlightened and your whole family, you think your family's dumb and you go home on Thanksgiving and Christmas break and tell them all this stuff you've learned. But now you just pick up your phone, right? And you just tweet it out right after class. So it just seems interesting to me that, that do you have a reason that you found why college students scored higher or, or just it, just the, just the fact itself? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know if we have any data on that. I'll, I'll give you an, uh, an, untethered speculation. Um, uh, I think that part of it is, um, part of it might be the, what, what you mentioned is a kind of confidence, um, self-assuredness that many college yeah. students have. I, I think some of it's cultural. So I think cultural, st uh, college students are, they, they, they're expected, they believe they're expected to ha to have views about all of these issues and, um, and to, uh, not be afraid to say what they think and that sort of thing. I think there's a kind of cultural expectation. Um, mm -hmm. I, I have to say though, um, and this may be a generational thing, uh, and I don't know if it's better or worse. So if I look at today's, so, you know, I teach undergrads. Um, I look at today's 18, 19, 20 year olds. They're not many, most of them are not on Facebook. Their parent Facebook is something your parents and grandparents yeah. do. <laughs> mm -hmm. If they're on Facebook, it's to have an account where they're like where their grandparents can like say hi. I hope you're having a good time at college, you know. <laughs> uh, or and I don't. A lot of them aren't on Twitter either. Mm -hmm. um, what are they doing great. instead? Well, it. I think most college students they're on Instagram. Yeah. They're they're Snapchatting and mm -hmm. they're on TikTok, <laughs> and these are not media that lend themselves to 
um, what you might think of as like content centered discourse. You're not yeah. like getting into arguments. You're not, I mean, no one's using TikTok to like make a statement about, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't I never use TikTok, so I don't know, but maybe they are, maybe they're getting on there and being like, if you really cared about the, you know, the climate, but, um, but I think they're, they're showing, they're, they're, they're sharing pictures, they're connecting, they're doing that sort of thing. Now, here's what I think. So they're not on Twitter and Facebook. So you might think, well, maybe it's better. They're doing less grandstanding. But I actually think there's something nefarious going on too. And that what I call like sort of like trinket morality. So it's like they get on they get on Snapchat or whatever or Instagram, and it's like a picture of them at the beach partying. And then it's like hashtag Black Lives Matter. Mm. <laughs> or like yeah. or like hashtag abolish the police. So it's like it's not even it's not even Mm-hmm. they're not even interested in having the debate the de- to yeah. have the debate is like why, why are we having a debate well of course we should do these things right right um mm-hmm. so i don't know if it's better or worse i mean maybe it's neither but i do think that college students are in my limited experience college students seem less interested in these platforms like facebook and twitter and more interested in here's a picture of me drinking a margarita oh and by the way defund the police you know yeah <laughs> No, yeah, I think that's <laughs> really interesting. Right. Uh, you you I mean, mentioned, oh, you want to go ahead, Jordan? No, you can go ahead. I, I was just going to say, you know, you mentioned early on that you you came to the conclusion that, that moral grandstanding is bad. So I just, you know, thought maybe you could walk us through what you think some of the costs of moral grandstanding are to maybe to individuals uh, and, and to society in general, because I guess there's maybe two different things going on there. What is it doing to, yeah. to each individual person that participates in it? And then what is it, how is it affecting us all in general? Because yeah. right now the, the cost I see is like, it makes you look really annoying to me. So I'm going to mute you. So I don't have to see you anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I, I had to fi- find out this way, Jordan, <laughs> that you muted me. Um, Good. So in the book, we give uh, we have three chapters of moral arguments. So for your listeners who are just gluttons for punishment, they want a bunch of arguments, moral arguments. So there's three general moral theories, right? There's consequentialism that says the right action is that which is favored by the best consequences, promoting happiness, something like that. And then there's what you might think of as like deontology, a Kantian view where morality is about respect doing your duty and that sort of thing, irrespective of the consequences, perhaps. And then the virtue theory, which is the the good thing to do is the thing the virtuous person would do and so on. So we, in a way, we give a, a all hands on deck argument against grandstanding. We devote a chapter of arguments, assuming each of these theories. So we have a chapter of arguments trying to show that grandstanding is disrespectful. Um, we have a chapter of arguments showing that a virtuous person wouldn't do it. There's a nice little section there on Nietzsche, and I, um, maybe we can discuss this a little later. I don't want to get sidetracked, but I think this is an interesting point where I think Nietzsche and Jesus agree, one of the mm. few points about how you should use morality. Um, the the consequentialist chapter, we argue that there are three main social costs of grandstanding, and I'll just briefly go through those. Um, so one of them is um, is polarization. So for various reasons having to do with the mechanisms of grandstanding, they tend to cause us to move away from each other in both in terms of our political beliefs, but also in terms of what um, people call affective polarization, which is basically how much you hate the other side. Mm -hmm. And what we've learned over the past few decades is that both ideological and these emotional polarizations have, they've, they've increased over the past few decades. So we're, we're moving away from each other ideologically, but also emotionally. And we claim, and we have a huge paper coming out hopefully soon in psychology that provides some evidence for this, that grandstanding um, causes polarization. And one way to think about that is that the way that grandstanding turns discourse into an, a moral arms race. So Jordan says, if you really care about the poor, you'll support a $15 minimum wage. And I say, are you kidding? If you really cared about the poor, you support a $20 minimum wage. And Brandon comes in and says, you guys, I'm so sick of this. Do better. If you don't believe in a universal basic income, then um, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. Right. So Mm -hmm. there's a kind of moral arms race. And it happens on both sides of the political aisle. You see it with like, you know, we went from reform the police to abolish the police in about 48 hours. We went from masks don't help to masks 
are supportive of the deep state or something. And for, I mean, I, I, I'm actually I'm not quite sure what the argument is there, but um, we went, we, so we're grandstanding because there's this, you have to stand out, right? You have to make yourself look better. There's, there's incentive to take more extreme stances. Now, why is that bad? Well, polarization, grandstanding driven polarization is bad for two reasons. One, it um, is not a reliable way of getting to the truth. When you're in a discourse driven by grandstanding, the incentives are not to respond to evidence or data or arguments. The incentives are respond to you stop saying stuff when it no longer impresses people. And mm-hmm. that's not a reliable way of discovering the truth, right? You don't, saying things because it impresses people, that's not a reason to think it's true, okay? So our view is that grandstanding pushes people farther away. Now, extreme views aren't necessarily false, but the mechanism of grandstanding pushes people farther away in a way that leads them to false beliefs. Polarization also um, makes compromise harder because uh, when you see the other side, you know, when the other side polarizes, the other side becomes evil, right? They're further and further away from you. And so, you know, you see this all the time in politics. It's like, the other side proposes this thing. It's like, oh, maybe it's a good idea. But it's like, no, the other side did it. They're evil. And so we have to distance ourselves. And so it makes compromise harder. So the first um, negative consequence is polarization. The second one is what we call cynicism. The basic idea here is, look, moral talk is this really valuable resource. It's how we um, solve moral problems. It's how we identify threats. It's how we praise people who are worthy of trust. It's a really important human practice, this practice of moral discourse. When you start finding out that people are using this practice for selfish reasons, they're turning this protective instrument into an instrument of reputation promotion, it it makes people cynical. It makes people cynical about politics, about morality. Moral discourse just looks like a battlefield with people being nasty to each other and seeking status. And so moderates check out. People who might otherwise have good things to say check out. And it makes us cynical about this really important practice. And that's bad. Okay. Um, And then the final thing we point out in this chapter is grandstanding leads to what we call outrage exhaustion. So a lot of grandstanding involves excessive moral emotions. So uh, especially uh, outrage. Um, So the littlest things become like the most outrageous, like morally egregious thing. Uh, if you remember like Obama once wore a tan suit to a press conference and like people lost their mind. Um, Trump tweets this funny thing and people lose their minds. So like, <laughs> you know, um, so we turn these little, we, t- we, everything is an occasion for outrage. And the reason we do this is because outrage is a reliable signal of moral conviction, right? So the moral thing, the, the more things that make you outraged, the more, morally convicted and very morally sensitive you are so but when everything becomes an an incidence or an occasion for outrage um it devalues outrage so you might think that outrage is really important so it's going to be harder for people to muster outrage when it actually is important so this is like the crying wolf problem Mm -hmm. um but it's also going to be um harder to um Take other people's outrage seriously. So outrage becomes a less reliable signal of injustice. It's like you hear someone, you know, it's like, wait, wait this, this is what you were outraged about? So given that it becomes a less reliable signal, and it's also going to be harder for us to muster it, right? If you're outraged all day long and then something really important comes along, you're not going to have the emotional reserves to sort of get outraged again about something really important. So those are the social costs that we that we discuss in that chapter. There's also one that we discussed in some psycho, um, psychological work we've done. Grandstanding seems to um, be a source of interpersonal conflict. Uh, so people who grandstand a lot report higher levels of conflict with friends and family. So is there ever a scenario where grandstanding might be morally virtuous or beneficial in any way? I mean, I think of stories like, I mean, I think most of our listeners find the Bible authoritative in some sense. Probably the vast majority of them think it is the authority. So there's a story in Luke 18 about this Pharisee and this tax collector where the Pharisee is basically, you know, just showing off all of his moral virtue and, you know, grandstanding in, in the way, in whatever way he can, like, I guess I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all, all, all my stuff, you know, but then this tax collector comes and beats his breast and says, you know, I'm a sinner. Um, and he, it's not 
um, grandstanding in any way. And it's the tax collector who goes home justified. So the Bible seems, at least in this story, to say grandstanding is not helpful. Uh, It's a pretty negative picture of it, but maybe there is a reason or an opportunity for it to say at least it's neutral. I don't know. I, I guess when I think of, you know, baseball players doing grandstanding, you know, after a catch or a football player uh, like that. I, I watched the Mississippi state and Ole Miss game where the dude's like peeing in the end zone. <laughs> I, I mean, I just think that's funny. I don't know if I would attach like a, an actual uh, moral value to something like that. So maybe you can talk to that for a second. Yeah, that's, um, <clears throat> so that's right. So there are other ways to grandstand besides moral grandstanding. You imagine like a, you know, uh, intellectual grandstanding, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can imagine a kind of, uh, yeah, kind of a showy sports sportsman grandstanding. And there's, and then there's, you know, in the book we discuss this too. There, there is a kind of spiritual grandstanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot. There's a. I mean, this stuff drives me nuts. Um, uh, so there are other domains besides the moral domain that yeah. that's that's um, where you can grandstand or do something very similar. And and other, those other domains might be less morally problematic than others, right? So me sort of high horsing about my intelligence over dinner, it's right. It's, like, it's kind of annoying. It's gauche, but it's like, you know, not a huge deal, maybe disrespectful in some way. But um, but we do think that there's a, spe- a, a special, unique problem with moral grandstanding because of the way that it disposes of this valuable resource of moral discourse, mm-hmm. but also in the way the grandstanding, um, lots of grandstanding induces people to trust you in ways that you may not deserve. So there's a case of Ted Haggard years ago. That's a really sad case. You guys are probably familiar with Ted Haggard. Yeah. So, you know, I think many people thought he was a grandstander. I don't know whether he was or not. Let's just say he was. And he induced people to trust him, right? So one reason why grandstanding, and this happened to Harvey Weinstein too, right? You, you give to, promote feminist causes for years and and then people discover you're this horrible person it's like oh my gosh how do we not see this well you know there's people use morality to cloak their true selves and to cloak their bad bad behavior so we do think that moral grandstanding has a kind of pride of place or prominence that makes it much higher stakes Mm -hmm. now your question about whether grandstanding is um is always uh, wrong. Our view is that it's a little philosophically uh, sophisticated, if I may, if I may <laughs> say so. Uh, the view is that grandstanding is always bad in some way and generally ought to be avoided. Mm. But that doesn't mean that it's always all things considered wrong. So think about I don't know what your what your views are about lying, but you might think that lying and there are examples of this in the Bible, right? Lying. Uh, who is it? Is it uh, he- Rahab Hagar? and the he- Rahab? And the he- yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So you might think there are some cases the Nazis come to your door, right? Yeah. You lie, yeah. right? So, um, so even for most of us, you think that lying is usually bad think usually wrong think that there may be some cases in which lying is the thing to do that's our view of grandstanding is that in general it's bad there's always something bad about it Hmm. um we think that that's shown by the the arguments that it's it's disrespectful in some way um but that doesn't mean that it's always not to be done now the question then is how often is it okay now our view is that most people think it's they err on the side of it being okay yeah. instead of erring erring on the side of maybe I shouldn't I shouldn't treat discourse this way. It's interesting you mentioned Jesus. I mean, I, I do think that Jesus is. I mean, I'm biased, but I think he. You know, when you pray, you know, don't make a show of it. You know, when you fast, mm-hmm. don't make a show of it. Um, I think these are if if they're not rules, they're general principles that suggest a way of thinking about. Um, you know, if you really care about people's looking well of, you know, thinking well of you, you can have that. Um, but there are greater rewards than that. And, and it's interesting, you know, we think that this is a part where Jesus and Nietzsche (laughs) agree. So Nietzsche thinks that like, I mean, for different reasons, obviously, but Nietzsche thinks that morality, you shouldn't use morality. Morality is, it's, 
I'll put it this way. It's pathetic to use morality to make yourself look good or to dominate other people. And I think Jesus thinks something very similar. I, I think Jesus thinks that mora- the goal, the, p- the point of morality is not to make yourself look good or to dominate other people. That's not what morality is for. Um, and so, yeah, I think that in general, grandstanding is is uh, is bad, even though there are cases. I mean, we could all think of cases. I mean, philosophers have been doing this to us for the past five years now. Well, here's a case. And it's like, okay, well, sure. That's, you know. Um, and I, so I think that, yeah, there are, there are going to be cases in which grandstanding is okay, but that doesn't change the, the default presumption against it being something you should be um, doing. Yeah, that's good. So maybe we wrap up just talking about briefly at least, because I know you've got a chapter in your book on this about what we should do about grandstanding. If it's something that's it's usually bad, how can we avoid it? And how can maybe how can we help others to avoid it? Is it something that's just only individually I do, or is there a way for me to help, you know, my friends and my family to stop doing it too? Well, one thing you could do is buy my book and send it to everyone you know in a real passive aggressive way. Uh, no, <laughs> I mean you can do that, but uh, that's not what we, we do. Think your book is great, and I think people <laughs> should get it. So I, I will put that out there. Okay, well, thank you, Jordan. That's nice of you to say. Um, so yeah, so we have this chapter uh, where we argue what. So we say what you know. What should we do about grandstanding? Um, so I'll say a few things. One thing that we argue at length that you should not do is call people out for grandstanding. We think that. Um, you know, I, I think there's a natural response, like people hear about our work and, and they want us to like, tell them how to identify grandstanders. It's actually very difficult, but they, they want like a grandstandoscope so they can go call people out for grandstanding. And like, that's like the missing the entire point of the book. Right. So, so we don't think it's a good idea to call people out. Why? Well, one, it's very hard to know whether someone's grandstanding. So it's unfair to make a public accusation. It's also just going to be practically, uh, it's not, it's not going to be productive. So I'm going to say, Jordan's stop it with the grandstanding. You're going to say, Brandon, you're grandstanding about grandstanding. And then we're locked in this conversation about what's in my heart and what's in your heart. The next time that that kind of conversation is productive will be the first time that that kind of conversation is productive. So we don't think it's a good idea to go around calling people out for grandstanding. So what do we do? Well, what we suggest is really two things. We, I mean, the goal is to change the norms, change the norms about how people engage public discourse. And one way to do that is to change our own behavior. So one thing we challenge people to think about, it's like a nice little kind of like heuristic, like we need to get like WWJD bracelets that say things like, uh, it needs to say something like, um, Am I doing this? Am I doing this to look good or to do good? Right? Is is what I'm about to say going to actually help people or do something good, or am I doing this primarily just because it makes me look good? Um, I got to figure out how to shorten that. That's not going to fit. But that's <laughs> I need. A, we need a, we need some bracelets. Maybe you guys could help me out with the marketing on that. But um, so so we need to figure out better ways to spend our time online. Right. So and we give some empirically informed uh, tips, I guess, in the book for how to identify yourself when you're about to grandstand and avoid grandstanding. You know, just ask yourself, like, if I didn't. If, if I was going to be disappointed, you know, I'll, I'll put it this way. Were I to find out that no one came away impressed with what I said, would I still say it? And I think that's a nice way of thinking about, like, what your priorities are. Um, okay. And then you might think, well, that's all great, but lots of people, other, you know, lots of other people grandstand. How do we get them to stop doing it if we're not calling them out? And one thing I think we can do is we can sanction grandstanders, but not by calling them out, basically by, um, being withholding. So ignoring them. So when you see people that you think are grandstanding, withhold from them the praise they seek. So imagine writing this like really detailed Facebook post about, Mm, I don't know. Let's see. So how the church needs to take a stand about the Oberlin college serving Chinese food or something. I mean, it's like really detailed, um, uh, grandstandy post. And then like, no one likes it. Okay. 
that's for most of us, that's, that's going to be embarrassing. And the idea is to develop norms where it becomes embarrassing to make moral talk about yourself. So a lot of grandstanding involves me talk, I talk, you know, as a taxpayer, as a Baptist, as a longtime member of this institution, right? They make it about themselves. And I think if we can make that kind of behavior embarrassing to engage in, to change the norms, then, you know, we hold out hope. I mean, I sometimes wonder if we're just uh, too optimistic here, but, um, hmm. but I hold out hope for a healthier discourse where people care less about using morality to make themselves look good and instead use morality and moral talk. I mean, to actually help people who are oppressed. I mean, <laughs> um, you know, there are lots of bad things in the world and uh, things that are more important than the promotion of my reputation on, on Twitter. That's awesome. Uh, this has all been really, really helpful. And I, I want to give you a huge shout out and thanks for joining the show to talk about it with us. And for our listeners who didn't get the the memo somewhere along the line. I mean, I think I mentioned it and we talked about it, but they have Brandon and his, his friend, Josh ha, have a book. Justin. Called Grant, Justin. Yeah. Wow. It's okay. Josh is the psychologist. He, he didn't I, write the book. Uh, we, we left him out. He's <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll give him credit here. So yeah, Josh, Josh Grubbs, he, Josh Grubbs, if you're listening, I love you, man. Yeah, but you, this you book was written out. with Justin. So. so Justin and Brandon have this book, Grandstanding. Uh, it's probably like one of the five Oxford University Press books that's actually affordable. So we recommend every single person on here that's listening to go get a copy, read it yourself. I think you'll really enjoy it. You'll benefit from it. It'll challenge your thinking. And maybe it will help us create an environment and a culture that is more conducive to uh, a friendly discussion and debate rather than moral grandstanding. So you can find Brandon and Justin both on Twitter. Uh, Brandon, what's your Twitter handle? I don't know if I should do this. I mean, I, I, I do these podcasts where I talk about Twitter and people being <laughs> bad on Twitter, and then I'm like, hey, follow me on Twitter. And <laughs> uh, it's just my name, uh, Brandon Wormke. Perfect. Because yeah. yeah. you mentioned this you know, polar, polarization and grandstanding paper and other papers you guys are working on. And I think a lot of us, at least me, I know I would be interested in finding out as soon as that comes out, you know, I want to know about it. I want to read it. I think that's interesting. So yeah, thank you. thanks. Thanks again for talking with yeah, us. This you. has been really helpful. Uh, I, I'm, I know that our listeners think the same as well. So thanks. And for those who have been listening, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in. <laughs>